It's Friday, March 8, 2019, and from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. Living in a city oftentimes means moving around the world with a sort of tunnel vision. Over time, you learn to tune out whatever's going on in your surroundings that isn't immediately relevant to whatever it is you happen to be doing at any given moment. Whether that's trying to cross the street safely or looking for your your turn or your exit when you're driving, your stop when you're on the bus or the train, all of this is sensory data. And there's just too much of it for your brain to really take in all at once. The built environment, often for reasons of survival, demands your full attention. But when you begin to take an interest in plant and animal life, cities start to look a little different. You know, you have these little breakthrough moments when, let's say you learn about a particular species or a particular category of plants, and let's say you're getting into flea banes or something like that, little daisies. And then, you know, all of a sudden, in April and May, you start looking around, they're everywhere. (laughs) And all of a sudden, all these places you just sort of walked by now are suddenly places that you're watching and you're paying attention to and you're thinking about in terms of nature. We go in search of urban wildlife on this episode of Pennsylvania Legacies. That's coming up. But first, tickets are now available for the 2019 Governor's Awards for Environmental Excellence coming up next month. Peck co-hosts the awards dinner every spring along with the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection. The Governor's Award is the highest statewide honor bestowed upon businesses and organizations for environmental performance and innovation. Everything from cleaning up watersheds, saving energy to eliminating pollution, reducing waste and more. DEP Secretary Patrick McDonald says it's a way for the Commonwealth to help foster new ideas that can then be deployed statewide. For me, it's it's really twofold. One is recognizing the, the really, really good work going out on out there. But two, also giving us a nice portfolio of examples for other companies, other individuals. Secretary McDonald returns as our keynote speaker for this year's dinner. Longtime listeners may recall that the secretary was a guest on our podcast a couple years back and spoke about the event. It's always a fun time. Uh, I've attended for several years in, in some of my previous roles, and it's always both inspiring to hear from those in attendance, what their engagement in the projects are. And it's also a good opportunity to meet folks interested in environmental issues. The Governor's Awards for Environmental Excellence Dinner is April 16th at the Hilton Harrisburg. You can find the invitation and instructions for reserving your seat at PECPA.org. Look under the Events tab. The Nature Talks lecture series hosted by Tokeny Tacony Frankfurt Watershed Partnership returns this month with the talk by journalist, podcaster, and urban naturalist Billy Brown. You may know him from his reporting in Grid Magazine, where he writes under the byline Bernard Brown, or from the Urban Wildlife podcast that he co-hosts. Billy's not a trained biologist, but he does have a wealth of knowledge about the various creatures that make Greater Philadelphia their home. And he has a particular interest in local reptiles and amphibians, which was the focus of his long-running Philly Herping blog. He joins us now with a preview of his March 20th Nature Talk at TTF. Billy, welcome to Pennsylvania Legacies. Thank you very much. Let's start with this idea of urban wildlife, which right off the bat maybe strikes some people as a little, you know, a little esoteric, maybe not an expected frame for talking about nature. City dwellers probably already more or less accustomed to the idea that we do share our cities with certain kinds of animals, pigeons, rats, raccoons, uh, maybe maybe some deer or something. Focusing on reptiles seems like maybe just another step further away from these familiar notions about what nature is and the distinction between nature and civilization. 
What sort of animals are we talking about when we look at urban reptiles in Pennsylvania? What are these you know, scaly critters that, that we share our, our cities and towns with? Sure. So I'll, I'll start by just to expand it a little bit that the podcast that we have and a lot of the writing I do is urban nature and wildlife in general. So it isn't specifically reptiles. I do a lot with um, something called the Pennsylvania Amphibian and Reptile Survey, or PARS, which is a state-funded citizen science effort to collect data on um, basically Pennsylvania's reptile and amphibian biodiversity. And for that, I am the point person for Philadelphia County. Every county has a point person, and some people end up with uh, the counties up at the Poconos or something like that, where, yeah, you'd imagine that's the place where you're going to find a few species of, of stream salamanders, and you're going to find rattlesnakes and exciting things like that, and wood turtles. But then in a city, it's the last place that most people think to go look for um, for wildlife in general, but yeah, in particular reptiles and amphibians. You know, I sort of approached it originally just as someone who can't stop looking for critters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think other people with other kinds of nature pursuits might be able to relate. Like if you're someone who goes fishing a lot, maybe you'll look at any body of water and you think to yourself, well, what could I pull out of there? Um, and if you're into birds and birding, you're going to be watching what's flying around in the treetops whether you're in a, a park in the middle of a city or you're out in the, the woods in the mountains or something like that. And so I think in the same way, uh, if you're someone who is looking at every object on the ground and wondering what could be hiding under it, that part of your brain doesn't shut off even when you're on your block at home in your own neighborhood. And so it's sort of that's how I got into it, I would guess. I mean, I live in Philadelphia. I live in the city. So I go out looking for reptiles and amphibians in the city, and I find what I can. And there's no arguing that we have biodiversity in reptiles and amphibians that could match what you get more out in the countryside, you know, we definitely have a lot less. Right. <laughs> so there's no getting around that. But you still have some. And I think that even even the really common stuff, the really stubborn stuff, can be a great way for people to connect with nature. And I think it's something that, especially when you're a bit of a specialist in something, whether it's burger or, her- or herper, as we say, or fishing or, or whatever you do, that you have a bias against the common stuff that you'd say, okay, well, I see redback salamanders all the time, right? But then if you go out and need a walk with some people and you're out in the woods and you're looking under logs and rocks in the woods like you do and you see a whole bunch of redback salamanders, and in your own head you're thinking, man, I wish I'd find something interesting to show these people. But then you stop and look and you see all the kids and everybody getting really excited about these redback salamanders. And I've gone, I've done this kind of thing in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, you got some really neat salamanders and really neat small snakes that live in the city. So I'd say for starters, you know, you can find a lot of common stuff that, common native stuff, I'll say. And so not necessarily the same kind of diversity, but you can still find a lot of, a lot of critters and you can find things that are a good way for people to engage with nature where they are. It can take the experience of nature and the experience of learning about nature and learning from it. Um, from something that you do somewhere else and maybe on vacation or on special trips with the school to something that you can do just in your backyard or in Philly that can be a vacant lot. And Pittsburgh is blessed with a very steep, uh, a lot of other cities in Pennsylvania, I should say, are blessed with really steep terrain, which means that you have all these little bits of fallow or sort of weedy ground on slopes in between right. blocks or between properties and stuff. And those are great spots to look under logs and rocks, even if you're in the middle of the city. Um, you can find a lot of neat stuff, and it's a, you know, it can make that part of people's, hopefully, more routine experience and less of sort of a destination thing. A lot of it is about shifting your scale small when you're talking about things that live in the ground or, or, or on the ground, and larger animals face more challenges. They're more obvious. They can get killed more easily by humans, and 
frankly, just have a hard time crossing roads. But if you have smaller critters, um, whether that's brown snakes that you know you can find in vacant lots in a lot of cities in Pennsylvania, or you've got certain kinds of garter snakes, those don't need as much terrain to live in. And then you get into smaller things, you get into lots of interesting insects and arthropods that you can find in what are to us very small urban patches, but to, you know, on the scale of a small beetle is like a, you know, it's a huge, huge patch of land. Well, I'm really interested in this idea of how this activity changes the way that you perceive the world around you. And like, how does an urban landscape look differently to you? What do you see that maybe I wouldn't? That's a good question. I think what I might see, what I hope I, we can get more people to see, is to just not pass over it. I think, especially when you're into nature, but maybe a lot of other things you learn about. You know, you have these little breakthrough moments when, like, let's say you learn about a particular species or you start learning about a particular category of plants, and let's say you're getting into flea banes or something like that, little daisies. And then, you know, all of a sudden in April and May, you start looking around, they're everywhere. <laughs> you know, and all of a sudden, all these places you just sort of walked by and not think about now are suddenly places that you're watching and you're paying attention to and you're thinking about um, in terms of nature. And they're places where you're now looking to see what's growing there, what's living there. And so I think that is a difference. It's something that I'd like to point out to a lot of listeners is that a lot of our cities have communities of, of naturalists, people who maybe they're not reptile people, or maybe they're birders, maybe they're into something else, but who have the same kind of approach there's a fellow in Philadelphia named Ken Frank, who's a retired physician, who I think of as more of a bug guy, but you know, a lot of bug guys are also really plant guys because they sort of go together. They're learning about one, you really learn about the other. And Ken wrote a book called The Ecology of Center City, Philadelphia, which is a book I'll recommend to anybody who's into to urban nature. But Ken's the kind of guy who sits there and has a brick sidewalk in front of his house and sits there and, and sort of IDs all the little plants and mosses and liverworts and everything growing in between the cracks of the bricks on the sidewalk. And so I think when you're sort of observing for city scale, you start looking at all these spaces that usually just walk right over, maybe literally, and you start thinking of them as spaces to learn about and engage with nature. I think that would be the difference. So then, you know, when you're able to kind of calibrate your awareness to account for those things in the presence of living things that you might not otherwise notice, what do you get out of that? Like, what can you learn from just by paying attention to urban wildlife? Sure. You can learn almost anything you could learn anywhere else. <laughs> I mean... There's specific habitat types you're not going to see as much. You know, I'm not going to have any montane fogs, you know, <laughs> like in West Philly where I live. But you can learn a lot about sort of bird behavior and territoriality and foraging behavior by watching house sparrows, you know. So you can learn about predator avoidance and camouflage and that kind of stuff, you know, by watching almost anything. You can learn about amphibian reproduction a couple of different ways. We'll take that. You know, you can watch the full life cycle of a bullfrog and what looks like a a polluted little pond in a park in West Philly, you know, you can learn about, let's say, a different type of amphibian reproduction. You can look at sort of a terrestrially based reproductive system with redback salamanders under a few logs on sort of a wooded stretch of hillside in between a couple roads. It can be a lab for anything you want to observe and learn about, even though it's in an urban setting. Uh, I mean, I've sort of been talking about it in sort of grander sense of experiencing and connecting with nature. You can also learn concrete stuff and observe and, and get the hang of watching and learning about nature just, you know, where you are in a city. So when you're looking at, like, which specific kinds of creatures can survive and thrive, you know, in an urban environment as opposed to some other kind of habitat, what do you see in the way of sort of weird and interesting adaptations and behaviors that make it possible for them, you know, to live in cities? Yeah, there are probably better lists out there than what I'm going to come up with, but I'll do my best off the top of my head. I think you tend to see, like I mentioned, points of scale. 
that you know larger animals are more likely to get run over crossing streets. And also, if you look at what city habitats look like, they look a lot like islands. So it's an interesting place to think about island ecology and like island biogeography questions because the little patches of land that are sort of cut off from each other by roads or buildings or blacktops have a lot in common with, let's say, small islands. And that can get into also sort of what can survive in smaller patches. So that might be the size of animals that can survive. So if you have a, like a timber rattlesnake where they might have a range over several acres, you know, at least, they're not going to do well in a city, right? The patches that they have to work with just aren't big enough, and they're going to get run over by a car going in between them. Whereas smaller salamanders, smaller snakes, invertebrates in general, they don't use much space. So biodiversity, I think, will tilt in that direction, or at least what you can access and what you can see. You tend to see more stuff that flies, just because by flying you can access more space to get over roads and all that. So you might have sort of small patches of habitat that look very isolated but are accessible for butterflies flying from one to the other. This is not a Pennsylvania example, but for the podcast, we interviewed some people involved in studying and conserving um, small blue butterflies out in Southern California, some of them that live basically under the flight path going into LAX airport. And so one of the things they were noticing is that they have these patches of specialized habitat that they're trying to conserve and restore, and they were realizing that even though it seemed like they're really far apart, these tiny butterflies could still fly from one to the other. That's one example of how you'll tend to see more fauna that flies. And that's also why, as much as I love reptiles and amphibians, you know, I think you can have a lot more fun as a birder in a city, just because birds can get in and out in ways that reptiles and amphibians just can't. This is something that I like to talk about, and it's something I've gotten into more and more, which feels funny. I used to make fun of birders in silly ways that, you know, just joke around with my friends and that kind of stuff, but a lot of them are birders. It's that intense birder-herper rivalry I hear about, the turf wars. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we tend to look at birders as a bunch of wimps, you know, <laughs> that they don't, they, they don't catch anything. They don't, they don't get their hands in anything, you know, and nothing, like they just sit there and, and look through binoculars, right? But no, in all seriousness, there are plenty of intrepid birders out there, but we can kind of turn our noses up at each other. With birders, I mean, you have a lot more to reward you there in a city just because more can fly in and out. And just our cities being where they are, you end up on interesting migratory flight paths. So you can experience a whole lot of truly global fauna and global animal movements and migration just wherever you happen to be in a city. My day job, which I won't go into, but I work in Center City, Philadelphia, very close to the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall and all that. And last year, um, which is when I sort of really started getting more into birding, I just noticed walking around with my binoculars at lunch hour, I would see in the spring just tons of neotropical migrants um, in just some big oak trees that are in the park over there. And in a way, I was sitting there sort of, you know, having a little bit of the experience of, of on the one end, you know, the boreal forests in Canada, on the other end, you know, maybe even the Amazon Basin, just, you know, a few blocks from my office. When you look at the creatures that maybe don't have that kind of mobility and are confined to these sort of islands, uh, as you described, does that go to the extent that you you begin to see almost genetically distinct populations within these more or less self-contained like biomes? Is that how self-contained are they? I guess is the question. That's an interesting question. I will speak as someone who's read about this kind of thing and not as someone who's specifically studied it. But I'll recommend a book called Darwin Comes to Town or When Darwin or Darwin Came to Town, something like that by Menno Schulheisen, looking at sort of urbanized places and cities as sites to study evolution. 
you know, life adapts to wherever life is, right? If you have selective pressure somewhere, you have evolution, right? So cities are places where, you know, distinctly urban selective pressures are applied to plants and animals and fungi, whatever else. So you might see a certain kind of small lizard called an anole, which we have in the, in the southeast United States. We'll call them chameleons sometimes, but there's tons of species of these all throughout Latin America, and, or at least the Caribbean down through Central America into, I guess, northern South America. But tons, like hundreds of species of them. I guess in Puerto Rico, they've seen uh, like Puerto Rican anoles evolve slightly different, but you can measure these things, like slightly different limbs and toes, which are better adapted to climbing on concrete and glass as opposed to on like twigs and branches. But the thing is they've seen the lizards evolve this way in different cities around Puerto Rico, and that's not a question of them having evolved it in one place and then transported, but more that these are similar selective pressures in each city and then tend to then push the evolution for these lizards in the same kind of direction, the same kind of path. Another interesting study or tidbit in there was looking at French pigeons. Scientists studying this in France had noticed that pigeons there were tending to be darker. And it turns out the darker plumage sequesters and then excretes heavy metals. Oh, wow. Lighter plumage. <laughs> That's um, crazy. Yeah. So, uh, so that the darker colored pigeons did a better job of getting rid of like zinc and lead um, than lighter colored pigeons. So you tend to see them predominate more in cities. And there was also little things in there about like, um, I think about starlings in urban settings developing shorter wings. And so if you study birds a little bit, you know that like that there's sort of a trade-off, I guess, between wing length and, and maneuverability. So you tend to see like species with sort of shorter wings, I guess, in forests and stuff where they have to dodge around trees and whatnot. So you see a little bit of that with starlings and cities. Human beings, I think, are accustomed to thinking of ourselves as somehow distinct from and separate from the rest of the natural world. And a modern city is in many ways almost like a, a monument to that idea, yep. which is why this is such a, yeah, such a fascinating juxtaposition. What can you learn or what can you, what can you teach human beings about where they fit into an ecosystem? Where are, are we impacted by the ways that we interact with other living things around us? That kind of thing, I think, can be a little harder in a city. As environmentalists, we think a lot about the ways that we impact the natural world might be then, in turn, impacting us, right? Yeah. Yeah, but so, so, so how do you see that in a city? Yeah. I mean, I think it's something you can see, like, in fishing or, like, ways that you can say, well, if we're producing a lot of pollution, then fish we like to catch won't be as abundant, right? That's, that's one. There are people, especially people who fish and people who study marine ecosystems, um, who have said, you know, in the past few decades, and this is more on the Atlantic coast than, I guess, the interior of Pennsylvania, but that we've been seeing, you know, number one, more small forage fish, in particular something called Manhattan, that also get called bunker, which are little fish that, that are interesting in their own right, but, you know, get talked a lot about as just for their place in the food chain, you know. They are what striped bass eat, what humpback whales will eat, so that when you see the cleaning up of a lot of the waterways in the mid-Atlantic, let's say the Hudson River, Delaware River, um, that as these waterways have gotten cleaner, people see more of these menhaden that come in from the ocean, but then with the menhaden follow other things that humans find more remarkable. So people who fish for striped bass, for example, in Philadelphia, in the tidal waters in the Delaware and the Schuylkill, talk about seeing those more. And the same thing in, in the Hudson River. There's a, a company that offers whale watching tours out of New York City, where I think because of those recovering Menhaden docks that you see humpback whales coming closer up towards the Verrazano Narrows so that you can 
and I've done it. You, know, <laughs> you can go visit the, you know, the biggest city in the country and go whale watching. And that's largely a result of you know, Clean Water Act, cleaning up waters and making it better for the lower levels in the food chain. It you know, works its way up. I used to live in western Colorado for a little while, and I remember there was a big project where Interstate 70 cuts right through the Rockies and, as a result, disrupts migration for a lot of species. And the intervention that was proposed was building like an overpass, like a land bridge somehow over the the interstate, which I always thought was fascinating. I'm wondering if you could build something like that or, or just sort of make decisions about how a city like Philadelphia could or should be configured so as to be, you know, more hospitable to, to urban wildlife. What, what would that be? What oh, would that look like? like? It's the stuff of my fantasies, you know? <laughs> so the kind of crossings you're talking about are one thing, and we see like a tiny bit of that in Philadelphia. There's a project in the Roxborough neighborhood in Philadelphia. So you've got this old abandoned reservoir on one side and a nature center on the other. Schoolkill Environmental Education Center. And someone at some point 10 years ago or whatever noticed that a lot of American toads seem to make the trip back and forth, you know, in the spring. They go from the woods into the reservoir to breed, and then they go back, and then you see the toadlets come out a few weeks later. And so they've been shutting down the road during sort of peak toad migration so that the toads can make it back and forth better. And it also turned into just this great community activity where a lot of families will come out and the kids will come out, you know, with their headlights at night and their headlamps at night. And you can sort of watch all these toads hopping across the street. It's a lot of fun. People actually turn out also with the idea of, of helping the toads across the road, right? They, they have their flashlights exactly. and they're like yeah. making sure that they're not getting run over. Yeah, it, it's a fun activity to help the wildlife. It also is a great experience that makes nature much more concrete for people mm-hmm. who just would drive past it most of the time. I also point out like a lot of stuff, again, back to the birds, even just looking at the flight paths, if there had been no cities that there are so many cities and they're so big that birds end up passing over them no matter what, right, in their migration paths. But beyond that, it seems that light from cities at night can attract birds that are migrating towards the cities. And so they end up landing in and around the cities and they're taking their breaks on their migration. So it seems that the way that cities hurt or help birds might be more important than we had previously thought about. And so there you have not so much how you help them get across something, but how are you making a city more hospitable once it's time for them to land and take a break? So if you're a warbler who's just flown, you know, 300 miles from your last stop overnight, you want to land somewhere where you can find the moths or caterpillars to eat before you, you fly off on your next leg. You want to land without whacking into a window. And so that's a part of it is looking at sort of the, the buildings we have in cities and picking windows. How do we make windows more visible to birds that have never seen a window before? They don't smack into it and die, which is something that kills hundreds of millions of birds every year. And then I extend that into the, the pets that we have. Outdoor cats kill something like billions of, in terms of just the numbers of small animals, including birds every year. So, you know, keeping cats inside and not supporting cats out on the landscape are a couple things we can do. You can also look at just pesticide use. Planting native plants should encourage more native things that eat plants, you know? So, <laughs> so a, a bush goes from being sort of a blank spot for the local insects to being something that will support a lot of local insects. And so a, if you're into entomology, you can see some really cool stuff that way. And also those are bugs that, that are eventually bird food and lizard food and frog food, you know? So these are all things that, that we can be doing in cities to make city better habitat. So you are going to be the featured speaker this month at the TTF Watershed Nature Talks speaker series. And I'm wondering if you give us a, just a quick preview of what you'll be talking about, what you hope people will take away from that event. Uh, what I would like to talk about is really focus on the global aspect of it, the ways that even if a city can seem like a bubble of a different kind of landscape surrounded by 
quote-unquote nature out there, that the city still remains very connected. I know that in one of the tributaries of the creek that the TTF focuses on for the watershed up in Montgomery County, some volunteers logged an American eel that they found on some restoration work. And American eels are a fish that you'll find them in urban creeks and rivers, but then they end up down the Sargasso Sea to breed, right? So these are ways that even if it feels like a bubble, living in a city, you're still very much connected with wildlife on a global scale. And I want that to be the theme of the talk. And for anybody that can't make it out for the talk, where can people read your stuff? How can people listen to your podcast? Sure. So just look up the Urban Wildlife Podcast. We're on Stitcher and iTunes and all that. I write an article almost every month for Grid Magazine. And in print, I'd go by Bernard Brown, which is my given name. So if you Google Bernard Brown and Grid Magazine, you should find a whole bunch of articles I've written. And if you're in Philadelphia, look in your local coffee shops and bars, wherever else, and pick up a copy of Grid. All right, Billy, Bernard, thanks a lot. It was fun talking with you. (laughs) Thanks, Jeff. Had a good time. Again, check out the show notes for links to the Urban Wildlife Podcast, the Pennsylvania Amphibian and Reptile Survey, and information on Billy Brown's upcoming Nature Talk for the Tuckany to Coney Frankfurt Watershed Partnership. That's happening the evening of March 20th in Center City, Philadelphia. It's a perfect prelude for this spring's Philadelphia City Nature Challenge, which we'll be talking about on a future episode. Billy's competing with other cities around the world for the title of Most Urban Wildlife Species Spotted. It's a great activity for anybody that's interested in urban wildlife and citizen science. We'll have links to that in the show notes as well. And that's it for this episode of Pennsylvania Legacies. We have new episodes every other Friday on the PEC website at pecpa.org. You can subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Player FM, or via RSS in your podcatcher of choice, whatever that may be. Or you can always just listen online via your web browser by visiting peckpa.org slash audio. All of our past episodes are available there. Follow Peck on social media. We're on Facebook and on Twitter. Look for at PeckPA, at Peck Policy to stay on top of legislative and regulatory activity we're tracking in the state capitol. Uh, dates of important meetings and upcoming votes and much more. And you can subscribe to our monthly In Case You Missed It newsletter. Again, just visit peckpa.org. Look for the sign-up button way down at the bottom of the page. But until next time, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening. 